The result of our failure is misery in this life, and eternal damnation apart from Christ. Yet for those in Christ, God has taken an interest. He made a covenant with us and rescued us in Christ. Welcome to the Fox Den with Terry Fox. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the Fox Den. In this episode, I'm just going to ramble a little bit about failure. It's not uncommon for people to consider things they've done in their lives as failure. In fact, some people feel they are a failure in many different ways. And we all have disappointments and regrets in this life. I even regret not doing better in high school. I graduated with a 2.23 GPA. After receiving my degrees, I realized I could have gotten much better grades in high school. It's easy to look back on our lives and see what we should have done differently. Maybe we should have done things differently in our marriage. Maybe we should have treated our spouse differently. Maybe we're too focused on career at the sake of our spouse, at the sake of our marriage. Maybe we're too careless with our words and our actions. Or maybe we should have parented differently. Perhaps our kids haven't turned out the way that we had hoped they would. There are many kids out there whose lives are in turmoil, and oftentimes the parents feel responsible. However, all of us have made mistakes. All of us have failed in one way or another. Every family is dysfunctional, and every one of us is imperfect. But even worse, every one of us is evil by nature. Only by the grace of God and the work of the Holy Spirit are we able to do any good whatsoever. Now, that doesn't mean that evil people can't do good things like feed their families or remain faithful to their spouses or even help an elderly woman across the street. However, their hearts are inclined to evil and hostility toward God. And think about that. If we're imperfect and inclined to evil, living in a sinful world, how do you think things are going to turn out for you? Now, this isn't a cover for your failures, and I'm not trying to minimize your failures. I simply want you to see your failures in the proper context. We're all at a disadvantage because we're sinners living in a sinful world, and we see the effects of sin every day. Listen to questions 14 through 19 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Question 14 asks, what is sin? And it answers by saying, sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Basically, sin is doing what God forbids and not doing what he commands. Question 15 asks, what was the sin whereby our first parents fell from the estate wherein they were created? And it answers by saying the sin whereby our first parents fell from the estate wherein they were created was their eating the forbidden fruit. So this is known as the fall of mankind, and we see this in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. Question 16 asks, did all mankind fall in Adam's first transgression? And it answers by saying the covenant being made with Adam, not only for himself, but for his posterity, all mankind descending from him by ordinary generation, sinned in him and fell with him in his first transgression. So, in other words, every human being sinned in Adam and is fallen with him. Jesus, however, did not receive Adam's sinful nature because he is not a full descendant of Adam. As the answer to question 16 says, those descending from Adam by ordinary generation. Jesus was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the Holy Spirit. Question 17 asks, into what estate did the fall bring mankind? 
And it answers by saying the fall brought mankind into an estate of sin and misery. And here we see the effects of the fall of mankind. Not just sin, but misery as well. Are you beginning to see why life is so hard? Do you see why you have failed in so many ways? Question 18 asks, wherein consists the sinfulness of that estate whereinto man fell? And it answers by saying, the sinfulness of that estate whereinto man fell consists in the guilt of Adam's first sin, the want of original righteousness, and the corruption of his whole nature, which is commonly called original sin, together with all actual transgressions which proceed from them. Notice that this answer says that we lost original righteousness and our whole nature is corrupted. And then finally, question 19 asks, what is the misery of that estate wherein to man fell? And it answers by saying, all mankind by their fall lost communion with God, are under his wrath and curse, and so made liable to all the miseries in this life, to death itself and the pains of hell forever. Do you see why things may not have turned out the way that you had hoped? Due to our fall with Adam, we lost communion with God. Apart from Christ, we are under his wrath and curse, and we feel the miseries in this life due to our sin, due to the fall of mankind. Now, I wanted to go through this short exercise to help you understand why you have failed in this life. Now, fortunately, God has recorded the failures of others for us so that we can see that we're in good company. And we can see how God deals with them in their failures. Oftentimes, pastors will hold up Bible characters as examples to follow. And you can listen to episode 25 to see why this is a bad idea. With that said, there are areas of their lives that we can learn from. Other than Jesus Christ, every human character in the Bible is a mess. Take a look at Eli. We find him in 1 Samuel. Eli was the priest in Israel prior to Saul becoming the first king of Israel. And Eli was in an elevated position within Israel as a religious leader. So as a religious leader, you'd think that his family would turn out okay. Certainly his kids would be well-behaved. But this simply wasn't true. 1 Samuel 2, verse 12 describes Eli's sons as worthless. His sons, who served as priests, engaged in sexual immorality with women who served at the entrance of the tent of meeting. These women served at the place of worship, and the sons of Eli served as religious leaders. And this was just as scandalous then as it would be today. Take a look at 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 23. Eli confronts his sons, and he says, why are you doing such things? And he's hearing of the evil dealings from the people. Did you catch that? Evil dealings. They're doing evil. They're religious leaders engaged in wickedness with women who served at the tent of meeting. So we see here that Eli was a failure as the priest because of the behavior of other priests, but he was certainly a failure as a father. His sons were worthless. You see, certainly they didn't turn out the way that he had hoped. And then we see that Hophni and Phinehas, two of Eli's sons, died on the same day, and God rejects Eli. Now, does this mean that Eli went to hell? Well, I don't think so. I think this means that God rejected him as priest. Look at what God says in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 35. I will raise up for myself a faithful priest, who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house. 
and you shall go in and out before my anointed forever. Do you know who this priest is that God is talking about? Well, this is a prophecy of Christ, our high priest. So God is rejecting Eli as the priest because Jesus is the true high priest. But we see here Eli's failure as a priest and as a father. Now, it might be helpful to define a priest here. A priest in the Old Testament is not the same thing as a priest in the Roman Catholic Church. Basically, a priest took the sacrifice of the people to God for the forgiveness of their sins. And Jesus is the only high priest. He brought himself as the perfect sacrifice for the forgiveness of the sins of God's people. Listen to question 25 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It asks, how does Christ execute the office of a priest? And it answers by saying, Christ executes the office of a priest in his once offering up of himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God and in making continual intercession for us. Jesus offered himself as the perfect sacrifice which would satisfy God's justice. And then Jesus also intercedes for us. He's sitting at the right hand of God, continually engaging with God on our behalf. He's defending you. He's praying for you. He's interceding for you. And apart from Christ, you have no access to God. You're outside the people of God. Eli's failure preceded the prophecy of Christ. His failure served as a sign to the perfect priest, Jesus Christ. Where Eli failed, Christ succeeded. Now let's move back to the beginning of the Old Testament. Moses is a key figure in the Bible story. The first five books of the Old Testament are attributed to him, and he led the people of Israel from slavery to Egypt through the Red Sea, and he led them for 40 years in the wilderness. So at first glance, you might think that he was a man of blameless character. Well, if you look at his life, you'll see some blemishes. First, he killed a man. We see that in Exodus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15, and he killed this man years before he led the people out of Egypt. And second, he lost his cool and struck a rock when God told him to speak to it. So when the people wandered in the wilderness, God told Moses to tell the rock to yield water. However, Moses struck the rock. Now, God was gracious and he brought forth water anyway, even though Moses disobeyed. But the heart of his disobedience was disbelief. You see, God called this unbelief in Numbers chapter 20, verse 12. So, this lack of faith was so significant that Moses wasn't allowed to lead the people into the promised land. In fact, Moses died before they entered the promised land, which means Moses didn't enter the promised land. Now, again, don't think that God didn't allow Moses into heaven. Moses' failure was a sign of Christ as well. Moses isn't going to lead the people into the promised land. Christ is. Christ is going to lead us into the ultimate promised land, the real promised land. So Moses revealed himself as not the Savior of God's people. But we do see that Moses did go to heaven when he died. He went to the actual promised land, not that little sliver of land called Israel. When Jesus was transfigured in Matthew chapter 17, Mark chapter 9, Luke chapter 9, hundreds of years after Moses died, Moses appeared to the disciples and spoke with Jesus. Do you know what that means? Moses went to heaven being a failure. 
That means that his salvation was based on something other than his success. His salvation was based on the grace of God. Now let's take a look at David. David is held up as an example to follow by many pastors because he's known as the man after God's own heart. In 1 Samuel chapter 13, Saul, the king of Israel, unlawfully offered a burnt offering to God. And as a result, he would lose his kingdom. And Samuel confronts him, and he tells him that his kingdom would not continue. But the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And then if we jump to 1 Samuel chapter 16, David is anointed as king of Israel. Now Saul is still the king at this time, and we'll see as time goes on, he tries to kill David because David is a threat to his kingdom. But here, God has Samuel anoint David as king because he's rejecting Saul as the king. So what we can conclude here is that David is a man after God's own heart because God said that's what he's looking for, and David is anointed king. So things start off well for David. We see the story of David and Goliath in 1 Samuel chapter 17. And the Israelites were at battle with the Philistines, and the Israelites were afraid of Goliath. But David was not. He confronted Goliath, and he acknowledged that God delivered Goliath to the people of God, and he killed him with a single stone from his sling. So David appears to be a man of courage, a man who's going to stand up for God and for the people of God. But it didn't take long for David to do evil. So if we move forward to the next book, 2 Samuel, you'll see his sad history. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, David commits adultery with another man's wife and got her pregnant. But it gets worse. The woman David committed adultery with was the wife of one of his faithful soldiers, and they were out at battle. So to hide his sin, he called this man back home and tried to get him to go to be with his wife. And Uriah was such a good soldier that he didn't stay with his wife because his fellow soldiers were still out at battle. Eventually, David sends Uriah back to the front line, and he has him put in a position where he's killed. So not only did David commit adultery, in essence, he committed murder. You see, he's trying to cover his tracks, and if Uriah's dead, then nobody's going to know. He wants people to think that Uriah got his wife pregnant, but now Uriah can't speak. But David didn't take God into consideration here. God was fully aware of his wickedness, so he sent Nathan to confront David. In response, David wrote Psalm 51. And after this sin with Bathsheba, Uriah's wife, David's life was turned upside down. One of his sons tried to overthrow his reign. Now ask yourself, do you want to be like David? Well, you probably don't want to be like David concerning his wickedness. But here's where David serves as an example. Take a look at Psalm 51. David wrote this response after being confronted by Nathan. It's a confession of his sin. You see that David is devastated by what he has done, and he's grieved because he offended God. Did things get better for David after this confession? Not necessarily. However, this is the proper way to respond to our sin. Now, you can listen to episode 64, where I cover Psalm 51 in full. So what can we learn from this? Well, we're in good company. Key Bible characters were just as much of a failure as you and me. Second, God is not hindered by your failures. Nothing can thwart the plan of God. Not only that, our failures are part of God's plan. He uses our failures for his purpose. 
Does that mean your failures were good? Well, of course not. David's adultery and murder were horrific. But God uses those failures for his eternal purposes. Your failures cannot derail God. And then third, trust the sovereignty of God. I'm an imperfect parent. I should have done things differently with my daughters. However, I trust that God uses my failures as a parent to shape my daughters into the women he wants them to be. You see, God doesn't just use my successes. He uses my failures as well. And then fourth, rest in the grace of God. Question 20 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks, Did God leave all mankind to perish in the estate of sin and misery? And it answers by saying, God, having out of his mere good pleasure from all eternity, elected some to everlasting life, did enter into a covenant of grace to deliver them out of the estate of sin and misery and to bring them into an estate of salvation by a Redeemer. The first thing that I want you to see in this answer is that God saved us because it pleased him to do so, not because we deserved it. I'll say it another way. Your failures do not get in the way of God's salvation. Again, I'm not making excuses for your failures or my failures. But if we're not saved by our successes and our good works, we're not without hope when we fail. Think of David committing adultery and murder. We see his heart that is grieved because he sinned against God. That's the heart that God is looking for. Next, I want you to see that God chose some to save. God doesn't save everybody. And then next, God entered into a covenant to save us from our sin and misery. We will never be completely free from the miseries in this life. We will suffer in many ways. We'll get sick, we'll get old, we'll die. We'll hurt people, and people will hurt us. Our freedom from sin and misery comes at death. And this should again help you see why you fail in this life. It's the effects of sin. It's the effects of the fall. And then finally, God saves by his grace alone through a Redeemer, who is Jesus Christ. Now, your failures are far deeper than your career or family life. Your real failure is not believing God and sinning against him. The result of our failure is misery in this life, and eternal damnation apart from Christ. Yet for those in Christ, God has taken an interest. He made a covenant with us and rescued us in Christ. So how do you deal with failure? Well, to some degree, the same way that David did. You call out to God and you plead for his mercy and you trust that you have it. God's not stubborn. If you ask for his mercy, he'll give it. And then you you ask God to continue to be gracious to you. Then you ask him that he would use your failures for his benefit and for the benefit of those affected. I often pray for my daughters that they wouldn't suffer the consequences of my failures as a father. And then, as I said earlier, trust the sovereignty of God. Trust that God will use your failures for your good. Take a look at Romans chapter 8, verse 28. God works all things together for the good of those who love him. It doesn't mean that all things are good. That means that God uses even the bad things for our good. And it's hard for us to see that in this life, but we have to trust that God knows what he's doing and that even our failures he's using for our good. Some way, somehow. If nothing else, our failures often drive us to God and to plead for his mercy, just like it did for David. Now, does this mean that things will get better? Not at all. Things didn't necessarily get better for David. However, 
ultimate victory is on the way. Jesus will return and make all things new, and we will rise from the dead and enter into eternal glory with God where there will be no sin, suffering, or death. And there will be no failure because Christ succeeded on our behalf. That concludes this episode. If you have any questions, please email me at terry at thefoxdenjournal.com. If you enjoy The Fox Den, please leave a positive review and share this podcast with others. And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe. The Fox Den is a member of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Thanks for listening. And remember, faith comes by hearing.